I had a favourite. I had a favourite book growing up, and it was, of course, the one that was yelled out a couple of times. Um, you could pick nearly any from the Narnia Chronicles, in, and you'd be on my top list. But certainly, the famous one, um, the line, "The Witch in the Wardrobe," has got to be up there for me as a bit of a classic. Growing up, um, there's just a phenomenal quote written by C.S. Lewis, who was a genius. Um, an amazing quote out of that book, and it's, uh, if you have not read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe yet, there is a special prayer meeting being held <laughs> later on for you, but let me give you a little hint as to what you will get. Um, it's good to pray. That's right. Um, when confronted by the idea of Aslan, the lion, who is um, sort of the, the main key character in this story that was written and really um, shadows or, or images to some degree um, a concept or a character of God in a broader sense. So when confronted by the, the idea of Aslan the lion, who's a picture of God, Lucy, one of the four children in the uh, family that make their way through the wardrobe into Narnia, Lucy asks, is he safe? All right? She, she's confronted with this idea that there is this great lion who lives in this world, and her question is, is he safe? And this is the, the response that I love, and I've got it on a screen for you. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Corsi isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Another character, Mr. Tumnus, also says about him, he's wild, you know, not a tame lion. Now, I love that little picture that we get into that I was going to say a children's book. Believe me, it's not just a children's book. Yeah. You should read it. But there's this little insight into how we engage with God in, in the real world, not in Narnia, in our world. And maybe you're thinking, well, I've heard about this God, and I'm not sure that he's safe. Is he safe, Chris? Well, as Mr. Beaver would say, safe. Who said anything about safe? Right? Corsi isn't safe, but he's good. There's a really important thing. We're going to be talking about God's power this morning. We've been doing a little series here since sort of the beginning of the year. Some of the attributes of God, particularly attributes that are uniquely God's, not something that we might share with him like creativity or you know, endurance or things like that, that we're created in his image for, but, but things that are uniquely God's that nobody else shares. And today we're going to be talking about the fact that God is all-powerful, right? He's all-powerful. Now, of course, there's a problem with power if it's on its own. Power, not matched with goodness, is a frightening thing, all right? Power, when it's not matched with good intent or good heart, 
is in fact what makes up a dictator, a tyrant. Uh, in the theme of our children's stories, a Sauron, a, a sorcerer, a, a terrible ruler that suppresses the people. And so this morning, as we think about God's power, we must also keep in the back of our mind the fact that Mr. Beaver knows about Aslan. We need to know about God. Hey, but listen, he's powerful, yeah. But he's safe. Remember, he's safe. He's, he's, he's good. He's good. Now, I want to talk about God's power in four different ways, and, or at least four different ways that we see it. Four different places that you can go to in this universe, and you will see the power of God. And each one isn't the whole answer on its own, and there are more than the four that I'm going to talk about, but I've picked four things where we can see from the scriptures God's power at work. First one is this, creation, in creation. So I want you to grab your Bibles and I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Romans 1, verse 20, and we're going to see what Paul says to the church in Rome and through the Spirit, he says to all Christians everywhere, Romans chapter 1, Verse 20, here's what Paul says. He's talking about God. He says, for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. Now, maybe it's a surprise to you this morning. You stand here on the subject of God's power, and God says, Hey, you're not uninformed about my power. All right? Maybe you've never heard a sermon on the power of God before. Maybe the concept of God's power is something that you've never really even considered before. And yet, God says, hey, you've walked this planet. You've seen what I've made. When it comes to the subject of God's power, none of us are without excuse. None of us can say, I didn't know. Oh, God, you're powerful. Really, I didn't know that. None of us can do that. Why? Because we see it every day. Every day. Now, I understand we see things sometimes and don't take them in. We see them and we misapply or we misattribute their, where they've come from, maybe. But nonetheless, God said, listen, when I said, let there be light, we have to go back to Genesis and we have to spend some time in the creation story from chapters 1, 2, and 3. But just... Just in a snapshot for a moment. In the beginning, there was just God. Nothing else. No, no explosion. No one atom that bumped into another. There was just God. Just God. And when God said three words, let, four words, there, mental arithmetic on the fly, be light. Let there 
be light. And there was. And there was. Right? God just utters words and universes come into being. When God says, let there be a light in the sky, the sun flickered and just erupted. And let the sun be separated from the moon at night. I know that there are a few people in this room who are like a moth to a flame for a decent sunrise, not looking at anyone in particular. Lindy, where are you? Not here. I love a good sunrise, a good sunset. There, There wasn't a sunrise or a sunset until God said, that's the way I want it. And it was. And when he said, let trees grow up, the the ground bubbled and shoots appeared and trees stood there proud and worshipping their creator. God speaks and creation obeys. You know the story that time when the disciples were crossing the lake and there was a, a storm. These guys had lived on the lake all their life. It's more than just a little lake. It's not like going around Grahamstown Dam. Like that's reasonable size. The lake that they grew up on, the sea that they grew up on, when you stand on the shore, you think that you're standing on the shore of an ocean. You can't see the other side. It's massive. And they'd lived on this lake all their life. They'd sailed the lake, they'd fished the lake, they'd worked the lake. That was their livelihood for many of them. I imagine it would have taken a lot for them to be really afraid, but there was a storm that hit once when they were crossing that sea with Jesus in a boat and a storm hit and they were terrified. They thought they were going to die. Jesus, of course, is sleeping. Now, last week we talked about Jonah who ran away from God. He was in a boat and there was a big storm and he was sleeping. Jesus was not sleeping for the same reasons Jonah was. Jonah was trying to run away from God. Jesus was sleeping because he was God. This was not a concern to him necessarily. The disciples, of course, are saying, hey, Jesus, don't you care? We're all about to die. Jesus gets up, wipes his eyes, looks around him and just goes, peace, be still. What happened? They didn't have to throw someone overboard. There wasn't a fish that needed to come. It was just the words of the Son of God who says, peace, be still. And the sea went from a torrent, a torrent of a storm, to a dead calm. We see God's power in creation. And you don't have to have been out in a storm to see it, although that's a good reminder. Nothing like a good storm to remind us how small we are. But maybe it should remind us about how big God is. 1 Chronicles chapter 29 Verse 11 says about God's power in creation. Yours, Lord, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty for everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom and you are exalted as head over all. Creation, when we look at it, leaves us humbled in the presence of a powerful God. 
Here's the second way that we see God's power at work in the world that we live in. The first is in the natural order, right? We look at creation and we just go, man. And it doesn't have to be storms and lightning and huge waves or anything. If you take the time to look at the little things in nature, the quiet spaces, uh, the, the veins on a leaf, the way that an ant works. I love the fact that the writer of many of the Proverbs asked people just to slow their life down a little bit and look at the little things in this world. He says, look at the ants. Look at how they labour. All right? Maybe, maybe it's not just the big things that we need to go outside and look at. Maybe it's finding some quiet space in your life to look at the little things that are happening in this world. And all of them are pointing to a God who is immensely powerful. But it's not just in creation that we see it. We also see it in God's deliverance. The way that God can deliver. Now, time and time again, the story of the Bible, as much as it is all about Jesus, if you don't know that it is, all right, when Jesus walked on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection and he had two friends who didn't recognize him, they were pretty down in the dumps about what had occurred in Jerusalem. And um, when Jesus said to them, hey, what are you guys so sad about? They just looked at him and went, have you, got, have you been living under a rock? Do you not know what had just occurred in Jerusalem? They've killed Jesus. And then it says, Jesus started. He started with the prophets and with Moses. And he told them everything that the Bible had to say about himself. Now, yes, the story of the Bible is all about Jesus, but if it's also about anything else, it's about how much we, his creation, continually get ourselves into situations where we need a saviour. Time and time and time again, the story of Israel is a story of a people who said, we love you, God, all of my days. We're going to worship you. You are amazing. Oh, oh, look at that pretty thing. And off they go. And we will just go, man, those silly Israelites. Right? How on earth could they forget that God had just rescued them, that God just delivered them, that God just showed up powerfully in their life? Why did they turn to Egypt? Why did they turn up the false gods? Why did they build an altar in their room and worship him? Those silly Israelites, we would never forget. Wouldn't we? Haven't we? One of the reasons I love the fact, a little bit later, that we're going to share communion together. And I'm not having a shot at other churches that do anything different. That's... That's fine. That's up between them and the Lord, and they'll be judged for it. No, um, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. But one of the reasons why I love the fact that we, week after week after week, come together and remember the Lord in communion by taking the cup and taking the bread, one of the reasons that we do that is because we are so forgetful. Yeah, amen. I need to be reminded every week, God is your deliverer. Every week. Otherwise, guess what? I forget. I forget. There are so many shiny things in this world that seem to offer so much and my thick mind will so easily turn to them. 
The old hymn writer wrote it this way. He said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Have you felt that? That God is all-powerful in his ability to deliver. So we go back into the Old Testament again and we get the story of, it's pretty well known by, by a lot of people, um, through a series of good events, Israel, the, the nation, the family of Israel, end up living in, in Egypt. And it starts off pretty good, it soon turns pretty bad, the nation grows there, but they are held captive against their will. They become a slave nation, a workforce for the Egyptian empire um, they had no rights, they were enslaved and treated terribly. And they were calling out to God for deliverance. For 400 years they lived under those conditions. And then God says, I've heard your cries for deliverance. I've, I've heard your prayers. And he raises up again through unlikely circumstances a, a man, Moses, the story of the first few books of the Bible are very much centred around the events that occur there. In Deuteronomy chapter 3 and verse 24, Deuteronomy chapter 3 verse 24, this is how the writer reflects on that. He says, Lord God, you have begun to show your greatness and your strong hand to your servant. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can perform deeds and mighty acts like yours? You've begun to show your greatness. Now, now what's amazing by that is if we backtrack about what he's talking about a little bit, you've begun to show your greatness and your strong hand. Many of us would know at least the story popularised by musicals or Disney animation movies, um, the Prince of Egypt, something like that, you know. Um, you'd know the story of how God shows up in the ten plagues of Egypt, you know, and the, the river turning to blood and the frogs and the flies and the gnats and all the rest of it. In, in ten acts, God completely humbles probably what has been the world's greatest superpower. And he brings them to their knees and he delivers out his people. And he reminds Egypt, listen, you have gods, but none of them are like me. In fact, if you were to go back and trace the ten um, plagues, the ten acts, each one of them is an affront to one of the gods that Egypt worshipped. Each one, each god, it was his domain to either control the waters of the Nile. And God steps in and says, I see your god. Hold my lemon, lime and bitters. <laughs> and the river turns to blood. Yes, it crippled the economy and agriculture of the nation. But it also reminded the Egyptians their God was no match for the God of Israel. And the same with the frogs and the flies and the gnats and the boils and the hail and everything else that God did. He was showing in his deliverance, I am all powerful. 
And yet, verse 24 of chapter 3, even as we reflect on all the incredible things that God did, the writer says, hey, Lord, you have begun. You've begun to show your greatness and your strong hand to your servant. Even, even all the greatest things that we see of God doing throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, they're just the beginning. They're just a little insight. They're just a glimpse of the power of God. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 29, it says, But they are your people, talking about the Israelites, your inheritance, he's talking to God, whom you brought out by your great power and outstretched arm. Let's just leave the Israelites for a moment. Maybe this morning you're in a situation where you just think, I'm, I'm completely boxed in. Either through my own actions, my own decisions, my own sinfulness, or maybe it's not yours. Maybe, maybe it's just the circumstances of people around you, your job, your work. Your, your extended family, your friendships, whatever it might be, you might be in a series of circumstances where you think, I feel trapped. I've got no way forward in this. And I want to tell you this morning, you call out to a God, the one true and living God, the God who said, let there be light, and there was the God who redeemed his people out of Egypt with a strong and mighty hand, I want you to know this morning that God is powerful in deliverance and you can trust him. So we'll see God's power in creation. We'll see God's power in deliverance. The third thing I want to say is that we will also see God's power in salvation. In salvation. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, one of my favorite Verses and following says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes. First to the Jew, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God, and we've already read this, what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what is made. As a result, people are without excuse. So we started with the idea of God's power in creation. We've all seen it. None of us have an excuse to say, I didn't know that God was powerful, but if you need more evidence... Paul's saying, hey, listen, I will never be ashamed of the good news of grace that can be found in Jesus Christ, the gospel. I will never, ever be ashamed of it. Why? Because that's where true power lies. The power of God is seen in salvation. He can redeem broken people and make them whole. He can take sinners, right? And some of us cringe at that word a little bit. It comes with some connotations that sometimes seem a bit confronting for us. 
I'm not going to stop saying the word sinner. It's, it's the word that the Bible uses. But if we try to explain what it means, it means rebel. A rebel. Right? We're rebellious people. Our hearts rebel against God's authority. And we say, no, no, no. No, I'll do it my way, thank you. All right? So we sin, the Bible says, in heart and in action. My heart is sinful, so it inclines me towards doing rebellious actions. But my rebellious actions just demonstrate the fact that I've got a heart that's rebellious towards God. Yeah. I'm a sinner by nature and I'm a sinner by action. And God says, I see your sin. Hold my lemon, lime and bitters. Your sin is not enough. It doesn't put you out of a place where you can say, well, you're unreachable. God says, oh, it's such a shame. They took the fruit. They rebelled against me. What am I going to do now? No. God's power is seen in the gospel. God's power is seen in the fact that we have a God who can step into a sinful and broken world and a sinful and broken people, and he can say, let there be light. Let there be life. And he can redeem and he can save. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So you, you start talking to someone about Jesus, love for them. We might quote the verse that we've heard this morning, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. And, and it's really precious to us. And there are people who just go, man, what a joke. Right? It doesn't make sense at all. God, right? Why, why doesn't God just sort of snap his fingers and just sort of overlook everything and make it? There's lots of excuses. There's lots of stories. There's lots of ways that our hearts rebel against God. In fact, Paul would say the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. All right, when we have a testimony morning, I love the fact that people you know, get up and, and I'm praying. One of the things I'm praying for, Mark, you, you know, count to three if nobody else has got up, that you don't even get to like three milliseconds. There's a lineup of people going out the back door, taking their turn at the microphone, or just ignore the microphone and just stand here and yell at everyone and just go, hey, listen, let me tell you about the story of the way that God saved me. Because every story, whether you've come from a gutter, whether you've come from a needle, whether you've come from a self-righteous family situation, I don't care what your story is, every story about how God saves people is a story of power. Yeah. Not yours, but the God who saves. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. So when you get a chance to tell your testimony... And maybe it's not here on a Sunday morning to a room full of people. Maybe it's to a friend over a lunch table and they just say, hey, listen, can you tell me a bit about why you... Look, you, your, your words will stumble. That's fine. It doesn't say that your testimony is powerful. It doesn't say that your words are powerful, that you're a great orator. It just says that the God who's saving you is powerful. And all you have to keep doing is just saying, I, I, I'm, I don't know, but just keep looking at God. Yeah. Right? Just keep pointing to him. Just keep pointing to Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. 
says God exercised this power. God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also the age to come. God exercised power when Jesus was raised from the dead, and it is essential to the story of your salvation. Because we see God's power in creation, we see God's power in how we can deliver, and we see God's power in the story of the gospel in his salvation. One last one. We also see God's power in the story of your, um, use a big Bible word for some, it's sanctification. Sanctification basically means just how God is knocking off rough edges and making you look more and more like Jesus. That's the meaning of sanctification, at least in my terms. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 says this. I pray, this is Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church and for us here in Raymond Terrace as well. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And the whole church should say, Amen. Amen, right? What a great prayer. If you never know what to pray for someone, turn to Ephesians chapter 3, pray that. If God answers that prayer, their life will be changed forever. But that verse, to a large degree, is Paul praying for the church in Ephesus. He's praying for us here. We pray it for each other today. That our eyes would be open to see that God's power that he exercised in creation, that God's power that redeemed his people from Egypt, that God's power that sent Jesus, raised him from the dead, and that we celebrate in the gospel is the same power, the same power that he is working in your heart with right now. God's power that can shape universes is present now. And Paul says, not we invite that power or um, let's, let's ask that power to come. Paul says, I, I just want you to open your eyes and see that power. All right? It's here. The Spirit is in you if you are in Christ. The Spirit is a part of this church as we are focused on Christ. And Paul says, open your eyes. God is at work now. God is at work now. Same book, if we go back to chapter 1, Paul says this. Still praying. Paul loves praying. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you... 
the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling. What is the wealth of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe? according to the mighty working of His strength. Hey, listen, God is powerful, no doubt. And we so often can see God's power everywhere else. Go for a walk this afternoon, go down the beach at Beruvi, go out to the bush, and we can look around us and just go, man, look at what God's done, He's so powerful. And we can know the stories of the Old Testament and we can say, wow, Listen, God was so incredible the way that he just rescued his people. He delivered them from their, in their need. Oh, praise God. He's so awesome then. And maybe you're even thinking, I'm so grateful that God could save a sinner like me. Amen. I'm so grateful that God was able to do that for me. And we, and we can look back on that day when we realized our need for a savior and we, just, we can worship and that, sh that should be the case. But there's one more thing that we need to do this morning. The story isn't finished. What Jesus began, he's able to continue and carry through to completion. The same power that was at work then is at work now. What your circumstances are, what your situation is, even, even the, the absolute wreck that you feel you've made of your life due to the sinful mistakes, sinful decisions that you've had. You might look at all of those things and just sort of want to curl up into a ball and just say, I just want to hide here in the living room floor until Jesus comes. You need to hear. I need to hear. God's power is not finished yet. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to come up and take communion. And rightfully so, we remember Jesus, his body broken, his blood shed. Not against his will, willingly coming to redeem to his own creation that wouldn't receive him. They said, this Jesus, we will not have him rule over us. That's what the people said just before they put him on a cross. This Jesus, we will not have him rule over us. And our hearts are so often like that. But in salvation, Jesus comes, hangs on a cross and looks at those that just reject him, abuse him, mock him. And he says, Father, forgive them. I don't know what they're doing. And when two thieves that are lying, uh, hanging on a cross either side of him, continue that mockery and the insults until one of them realizes, hang on, something's different. And he calls out to Jesus, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus looks at him. He looks at all the wreck of his life. That, that thief didn't have a chance to turn over a new leaf or redeem himself. 
make up for all the wrongs of his life. All he had to do was call out and say, Jesus, please remember me. I need you, Jesus. And Jesus said to him, today, today, you'll be with me in paradise. So when you come to the table, this is not just a routine. This is not just a a ritual. This is not just us. And Raymond Terrace Community Church, and oh, it's communion time again. This is us as a church pausing to worship and just say, you know what? No song, no, no band, no, no word. Of the from, this is just the cup and the bread. And as a church, we pause and we take it. And we say, we remember Jesus. We remember him. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. This is how I want to conclude. Just with what God has to say to you this morning. Ephesians 6 verse 10. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your victory over death. Amen. Thank you that you have mocked death and the grave. Where death is your victory. Where death is your sting. And you did that because we couldn't. So Jesus, this morning we worship you. You are powerful, powerful in creation, powerful in deliverance, powerful in salvation, and even powerful to take our lives and shape them to look more and more like yours. So this morning, we come as a church and we come to worship a powerful God. Amen. As you walk forward to take these emblems and then take them back to your seat, with whatever song is being sung or whatever occurs in the minutes that follow, you have two choices when it comes to God's power. None of us are without excuse. We don't even have to get past point one, creation, for that to become apparent. But what will you do this morning confronted with the fact that we have a God who is all-powerful? One option is to reject it, right? Foolishly, but it's an option. Reject it. God's power is not for me. Another option is to submit to it. To bow your knee before it. Say, this is a God who is powerful. And that act of submission, whether it's for the first time ever, as you call out to him like the thief on the cross... Jesus, will you remember me? Or whether it's for the thousandth time or the ten thousandth time that you bow your knee before a powerful God this morning in worship. What you do this morning as you take the bread and take the cup is a response to say, Jesus, you are powerful and I bring myself to you under that power. I submit to your power. I place you, God, again, 
ruler and king and Lord in your rightful place. If you've done that, I invite you to come forward, take the cup, take the bread. If you've never done that, if you've never done that, today is the day of your salvation. Don't leave it. Don't walk out the door and say, I'll do it another time. Today. Maybe it starts something like this. If you don't know what to do or how to respond to that. There's no magic formula. It's not like a secret page in the Bible that you have to turn to, to find out. You can simply say something in your own words that echoes this. God, I know I'm a sinner, a rebel. I, I know that I've taken your power and thought that mine was better. And right now, I just want to say sorry. Right now, I want to turn away from that. Right now, I acknowledge the fact that you are all-powerful. You're God. And I want to live my life following your ways. Please forgive me. Thank you for saving me. Now, if you've, if you've uttered words similar to that today, I'd love for you to come and talk to me or someone that you know here in this church that follows after Jesus and say, I, I want to walk this walk of a God who follows, uh, following a powerful God. Yeah. And, and we want to just walk alongside you and help you and, um, and for you to encourage us because, man, we all need it. All right? Let's come forward and take communion.